Welcome, everybody, to Dad Talk Live. I'm your host, Biz, from a very rainy, dreary, goddamn dismal February day here in the mid-Atlantic United States. I'm sick of this weather. It's cold. It's wet. Uh, I'm annoyed. Anyway, I'm glad to be here with you guys. If you're joining us for the first time and want more information about our show, please visit our website at deadtalklive.com. Also, please visit our brand new news site at deadtalknews.com. Also, feel free to visit any of our five social media streaming platforms, which include YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter. want to welcome all of you guys here tonight from around the world. Uh, good evening to some of you and good morning to others. We have our moderators with us, Khaleesi. We have, of course, Saz, who's also here. Singer Chick is here. Cece Wheezy, our regular, is also joining us. Going down to the Facebook side, we have Colette, Philip, uh, Lindsay Sparks, our regular, Lisa, welcome to all you guys. On the Instagram side, we have Cole uh, giving us a thumbs up. Ronaldo is joining us. Dar, Miraculous, all of you guys, thank you so much for tuning in tonight. And tonight's topic is a little bit, I don't know, it's, it's kind of hard doing research on a topic that I decided to do of suspension of disbelief. Now, for those of you that don't know what that is, that is when we sit down and we watch a movie, horror or not, doesn't matter, we have to put certain elements of reality aside. And that's where the term suspension of disbelief comes in. And surprisingly enough, there's there's not a lot of research on this on the internet when it comes to the entertainment industry. Uh, How, of course, we know we have the fans out there that like to pick apart every movie, TV show, frame by frame, and point out how unrealistic it is. Well, suspension of disbelief is directly related to that and how you have to put that part of your brain, you got to turn that part of your brain off to some extent, to fully enjoy the entertainment that you've paid for to watch. It's pretty simple. You've got to turn it off and realize you are watching fiction. But, you know, we have these fans, viewers, and this is not a criticism. Uh, Sometimes when it gets a little way out of the realm of possibility and belief... Even I myself start to say, oh boy, you know, I got to admit, I do it too. If it goes way outside the boundaries. And a perfect example is Jason Voorhees from the Friday the 13th movies going to space. I mean, really, guys? Oh, God, I'm never going to let them live that one down. Yeah, Jason Voorhees in space all, you know, gypped up in that space hockey mask and the uh, space age outfit. Anyway, that's what suspension of disbelief is. And I see Summer is here today. Welcome, Summer. I'm glad you did not watch yesterday's show or else you would have been calling me, uh, ringing my ass up about what I was saying. But it's good to have you here with us today. Want to welcome Zoe C., who's also back with us. Welcome, Zoe. Welcome, Summer. 
So, uh, just a few scheduling notes. This week, again, like last week, there will not be a show this Saturday. Because what I was supposed to do last weekend, because of the weather, got postponed to this weekend. And let's see if the weather plays nice for what I'm supposed to do to actually take place. So, Friday will be our last show for this week. And then we'll be back with you on Monday. Don't forget, Tuesday... We have our special guest, Sam Valentine, who played Danny in the movie Followed earlier this week. We had our co-star, Matthew Solomon, who played Mike in the movie Followed. And we're going to get a different perspective uh, on that movie. So very excited to have Sam joining us. And that's this Tuesday, February 16th. Uh, Looking forward to that. And we also have a lot more guests that I'm not yet ready to announce. We're just waiting on final confirmations. And as soon as those come in, I, of course, will post it, share it, announce it here all over our place. So please keep monitoring our social media, our websites to get all the latest news and whatnot. So with that out of the way, let's get to uh, some news as we always do. And this first one, how Lydia and Henry's relationship potential on The Walking Dead was wasted. I think we kind of touched on this prior on a rec- on an other article, but they felt it worthy to write about again. So we all know. I mean, you know, I don't know how you guys feel, but I like Henry and Lydia as a couple. I really do. I was not expecting Henry to die. I thought Henry, because uh, the trouble they went through in, uh, you know, showing him during All Out War as a little kid, and then the time jump, and then we see his real-life brother playing the role of Henry, the Lynch family, who all three siblings have been on the show, starting with Madison Lentz way back in seasons one and two, who played Carol's daughter, Sophia. But anyway, I liked Henry. I really did. And uh, was totally shocked when he was killed off. Uh, I really, but looking back on it now, it's, uh, it's a big critical pivot moment for Lydia and for Carol. I mean, yeah, Carol is no stranger to losing kids, but it's luckily something she has not grown cold-hearted to and saying, oh, you know, that's just another one gone. That'd be pretty brutal if that's the attitude that Carol had. And we all know her history when it comes to children that she starts to care about and look after. And Henry's just the latest example. And I'm hoping for Carol's sake, it's the last example I mean, the woman needs a break and a change of luck when it comes to kids. So, let's see. Singer Chick writes, I figured since they killed off Carl, and that was who was in the comic with Lydia, I really was shocked because I thought Henry was going to take his storyline. I think a lot of people were shocked that they killed off Henry. Like, uh, just because of all the trouble they went through, uh, bringing him back, and making him such a big part of season nine, the first half of season nine, and how he wanted to get out of the kingdom, go to Hilltop, 
expand his horizons. We know that he had a thing for Enid, but then uh, Lydia came along, and those two bonded very quickly. And I liked those two together. I really did. And I was very heartbroken when he was ripped away from us. And when you're watching The Walking Dead, you know, I think by now we should know that if a character starts to get a lot of attention, it's probably a prelude that they're going to get killed. (laughs) That's exactly what happened with Henry. And looking back over 10 seasons, it's not the first time they did it. So be weary when a character starts to get a lot of attention that did not receive that much attention before. Like, on my good example, if we start off either the six bonus episodes or season 11, and for example, Rosita, who I've been saying for the longest time, I would love for her to get a storyline where she's the focus of it. She's always been a supporting character for such a long time now on the show. If she does get a story, which I want her to get, but I don't want to see her killed, I'm going to be like, oh boy, here we go. I'm going to start preparing myself for Rosita to get whacked off the show. (laughs) Anyway, let's see what they have to say about Henry and Lydia's relationship. When Henry was revealed to be the final victim of the Pike Massacre... At the end of Season 9 of The Walking Dead, fans were shocked. After his relationship with Lydia was a core focus of the latter half of the season, it was surprising to see his time on the show cut short. When Carl, with Carl killed off the show the season prior, Henry seemed to be taking over Carl uh, comic storylines, just like Singer Chick just said. This includes his relationship with Lydia as Carl and Lydia's relationship plays a key role in the comics. After so many fans complained that killing Carl was the show's biggest mistake and that it ruined the show's future, having Henry take over his role in some fashion was the logical next step. Instead, Henry was killed off too, ruining any future storylines and character development between him and Lydia. This was a mistake, which is only compounded by the loss of Carl in the season prior. With one of Lydia's only real connections to the survivors gone, her storyline seems to be a little lost with the Whisperer War finally finished. The Romeo and Juliet-esque relationship between the two was a refreshing one and would have been nice reprieve during the very dark season 10. Instead, we are left thinking, what if? Uh, What we did end up getting in season 10 is only further proof that they should have kept Henry around with Lydia. Throughout season 10, Lydia was mistrusted, mistreated, and abused at the hands of the people she thought would welcome her. Even Sorry, excuse me. Even Carol, Henry's adoptive mother, used Lydia for her own personal gain in the Whisperer War. They're talking about the time that Carol brought Lydia along on that meeting with the bridge with uh, Mary, Gamma. Uh, Yeah, Carol used Lydia. She wanted to show Gamma 
that Alpha's full of shit and she's lying to them. It was successful in regards to Carol's, you know, end game. But in turn, that really upset Lydia and she went off and by her own. Henry would have uh, not stood for that. He would have fought to make sure that Lydia was safe and happy in the communities, just as he did in season nine. Lydia was already suffered so much on the show, so to see her misery compounded even further since Henry was killed off is cruel. It is cruel, and Lydia is going to be a character that you can totally tell is going to be one of those characters who's going to have to endure one tragedy after another. And that makes her very similar to Carol, and that's why I believe they ended season 10 with a real connection between those two characters. Uh, Carol was willing to sacrifice herself and jump off the cliff to lead the horde away from everybody, and it was Lydia that came in, pulled her back, and saved her life. And at that moment, when those two are hiding behind the rock as the walkers are going off the cliff, there was a true bond and relationship that was formed right then and there that was not there before between those two characters. Was it real? Was Henry's decision to go out and save Lydia on his own a naive one with grave consequences? Certainly. But it was also a sign of the instant connection and real feelings between the two. Absolutely. While many people dismissed Henry and Lydia's relationship as just young love, it was more than that. Henry risked his life to save Lydia from a life of abuse after recognizing the connection between them and the horrible situation she was trapped in. Seeing their relationship continue to develop and strengthen throughout seasons 10 and 11 would have made them grow on people who doubted their relationship. By cutting the relationship off before it could go through much more development, The Walking Dead left Henry and Lydia as wasted potential. Do you guys agree or disagree? I personally agree with that. Uh, Philip writes, I was hoping Henry would make it. Lindsay says, I like Lydia and Henry together. Khaleesi writes, I love that moment between Lydia and Carol. That's a great moment. That is a great scene. Uh, That is an awesome scene. Welcome to Raul, who's just joined us on Instagram and given us a thumbs up. Character development. Had Henry survived the massacre, his character would have been changed in new ways. His character, post-time skip, was always focused on doing the right thing. So to see him struggle to maintain that hopeful outlook while Lydia supports him and reminds him of the good he can do without uh, having been intriguing. Meanwhile, Lydia would have had someone to rely on as she adjusted to life in the communities. While her mental strength and good heart allowed her to become a contributing member of the communities despite their doubts, Lydia would have been able to do so in a much more natural and interesting way with Henry by her side. And with the majority of The Walking Dead's relationships in shambles or non-existent going into season 11, keeping Henry and Lydia together 
would have been a sign of stability amidst the chaos of the Whisperer War, despite them only being teenagers. With Daryl always talking about fighting for the future, this relationship could have been a perfect example of that exact future, one where people protect those who need protection and always do the right thing rather than just living with it, as Daryl put it in Season 9. While there's nothing that can be done about it now, Angela Kang and the Walking Dead writers wasted a lot of story potential by ruining Henry and Lydia's relationship, the chance to see the two grow into their own and eventually become leaders of the communities years down the line, sadly, will never come to fruition. And I got to say one thing uh, that I think the Walking Dead writers who I have immense respect for, might just keep going down this wrong road. You can go back to Carl's death on this and a lot of other situations. They want to make a dramatic impact uh, at the expense of losing a very liked uh, and fan-favorite character. Carl, Henry... The list goes on. I can be here for the next hour talking about it. And I've said this before. I think one of the reasons they killed Carl off the show was to give a plausible explanation as to why Rick spares Negan. They killed Henry off the show to further Lydia's and and Carol's character arc. Again, at the expense of Carl's character, at the expense of Henry's character. Now, that's extreme. That's extreme. Uh, I think as writers, they can accomplish that by taking a less dramatic route. But it's the walking dead. It's the apocalypse. The, uh, you know, the unexpected happens every day. Losing people you love is a big part of this show. You know, no one is safe. No one is safe. And that's the point that they do not want to walk away from. And to a big degree, I I totally understand and agree with that. It's just that some characters, for us as fans, it's very hard to lose. And a lot of people, we all know this, a lot of people stopped watching The Walking Dead when we lost Abraham, when we lost Glenn. They lost a big... Uh, part of viewership in the younger demographics when Carl got whacked off the show. I know personally my own daughter, Carl's death was the last episode she watched. And she had watched every episode up until then. So, I mean, I have my own family as proof that, you know, when they kill off fan favorites, you're doing it at a big risk at viewership. So maybe over time, those bad decisions have just added up. Welcome to Landa. Welcome back, Landa. It's good to have you back on Facebook. Uh, Matthew is with us on Instagram saying, I watched The Walking Dead. Sonny's just joined us on Instagram and waving at us. Welcome to all you guys. Let's move on to the next thing that we have. What makes a cult film? Now, this is an interesting question. For me, a cult film becomes a cult film many, many years after it's released. 
uh, as you can see in this picture, this is from uh, uh, The Devil's Rejects, okay? When House of a Thousand Corpses and The Devil's Rejects came out, both from Rob Zombie, uh, movies that come out, they're not placed into the cult classic category right away. That happens over time. Uh, after the movie has come, gone, the big fanfare has died down, and then you have a big base of core fans that are just infatuated and love a particular movie or movies, in this case with the Rob Zombie movies. For me, that's what makes a movie a cult classic, hence the name cult. I don't really particularly like that name, but that's the name that's always been used. Uh, Singer Chick writes, Has anybody wondered what the stars of the show would be now if they had never, ever killed off the favorites? Oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure everybody wonders what would be, what, what if, if this person didn't die or that person never got killed on the show. So, what makes a film a cult classic? The answers from some of the talking heads in this series vary from a film that never stopped showing to one that wasn't successful on its first release but gained a following to something you could only find on VHS. That last part I totally disagree with. Then there are movies that were banned, once a guaranteed entry into the cult status. The second installment of Time Warp, the first focused on the midnight movies, looking at arguably the best kind of cult film, horror and sci-fi. It's loosely hosted by legendary director and producer Joe Dante. He did Gremlins and The Howling, who is joined by King of Camp uh, Cult Films, director John Waters, uh, Polyester, Crybaby, and actors Ileana Douglas and Kevin Polak, who add, who add little, but the remnants from the directors and actors are as fun as the twisted plot lines themselves. And the tales of low-budget workarounds is a real treat. No horror tribute would be legitimate without one of the greatest and most influential films of all times. And that, of course, is George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. His 1968 independent film about a group of people trapped in an isolated farmhouse while marauding undead cannibals try to eat their brains is considered the turning point for horror films. Uh, the whole brains thing is actually, you know, Return of the Living Dead, but we'll let that one slide. Rather than a classic ghost story, Romero's inspiration came from the real-life political and racial upheaval of America in the late 60s, the Civil Rights Movement. As well as being the first splatter film, Romero introduced the idea of using horror as social satire. He also cast... Uh, black actor Dwayne Jones as the lead, which was unusual at the time. And I'm going to go back. I've mentioned this before. Uh, the name of the actor who uh, was the star in Night of the Living Dead, his real name is Dwayne Jones. 
Now, we know another, another Dwayne Jones as a fictional character on The Walking Dead, and that's Morgan Jones' son. His name was inspired by the actor who played in Night of the, Night of the Living Dead, the original one in 1968. As Ken Foray, who starred as the protagonist of Romero's sequel, Dawn of the Dead, says it's considered in the African-American community as a major accomplishment that I survived the first five minutes of a horror film. That's true. Foray also starred in, that's just a link, Chainsaw, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, widely regarded as one of the goriest films of all time. With a small budget, director Toby Hooper shot the film on weekends using borrowed equipment, and while it was banned in several countries due to, to the violence, most of the gore is implied through suggestion. A highlight of this episode is Hopper, sorry, Hooper, I keep screwing that up, no, sorry, it is Hopper, Toby Hooper, it's Toby Hooper, sorry, I apologize, who died in 2017, recounted how he called the film classification board to ask if he could hang a girl on a meat hook and still get a PG rating. <laughs> I did not know that. Hang a girl, this is a famous scene in the movie, hang a girl on a meat hook, but yet he still wanted a PG rating. No, that wasn't going to fly. Other classics profile include Death Race, the 1975 dystopian film about a cross-country car race in which contestants earn points for killing pedestrians, which almost predicted the reality genre and stories such as Hunger Games, A Clockwork Orange, which needs no explanation. Malcolm McDowell tells a great anecdote about the singing in the rain scene. Sam Raimi's slasher, The Evil Dead, which Stephen King called the most ferociously original horror movie of the year in 1983, and which pioneered the much-imitated, sorry, frantic, shaky camera device and shockly titles such as Reanimator, The Brother from Another Planet, and Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. It's not all 80s VHS slasher films. There are the work of musician and director Rob Zombie's black comedy horror, The Devil's Rejects, and one of the most controversial films of this century, The Human Centipede. So tasteless, it even shocked John Waters. Uh, I'm sorry, I never considered comedy as part of The Devil's Rejects. Uh, it's the story of a deranged scientist who, for reasons never explained, stitches people together mouth to anus, create a centipede, and its Dutch director, Tom Six, looks like something from a B-grade film himself. In the doco film with great interviews, Six is a standout, defending his film as medically accurate because he consulted with a surgeon before revealing he only told potential investors that the story was about people being stitched together. 
I'm still not sure if six is serious, but the ambiguity is brilliant, much like the film in Time Warp. So there you guys have it. Their definition of cult classics. Can't argue with much, except for that whole it has to be on VHS thing. Cult classics are being made today. And like I said, just before I started reading this article, for me, a cult classic is becomes a cult classic uh, because history, as time passes, defines it as a cult classic. So movies that come out today, a movie that you might have watched yesterday that was released this year or last year, that was good. You know, a good example is Followed. Okay, uh, we've been talking a lot about that movie. We had one of its, we had its main star on on Monday. We're going to have its co-star on on Tuesday. Who knows? In five, ten years from now, Followed might become a cult classic. The, the fun part is we don't know. There is no way to know at the current present time what movie is uh, going to or not going to become a cult classic. Uh, Summer Springer writes, Because of Human Centipede, I will never knock on anyone's door at night in the rain. That movie was twisted. Yeah. That, I mean, you, yeah. It was twisted. But it's, it's gained a cult following. And cult classics are not just limited to film. There are a lot of uh, TV shows. And one that really just pops out at me right away is a show called Firefly. There have been many over the years. But Firefly, I believe, only lasted like one or two seasons. It starred Nathan uh, Fillion, uh, who I love as an actor. Uh, it had a pretty decent cast, but when it came out, the viewership was not there. But in the years following, Firefly became a very big cult classic for television, as have a lot of other shows on TV. So just an example that it's not just limited to film, it carries over into television as well. So, let's get on to the next thing. Uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan promises final episodes will be quote-unquote special. The Walking Dead finally has an end point after many seasons and episodes, and star Jeffrey Dean Morgan has teased that they will be well worth tuning in for. The Negan actor was asked on Twitter what he thought the best thing about the show was, and it sounds like he's pretty confident there are good things in store. Lots of stuff, I think, but I'll tell you, knowing its ending is rough for those of us that have been around a minute, he tweeted, really is a second family. Going to be difficult to wrap head around, but very lucky to have had this time together, and the next 30 episodes are going to be special. Here we have a picture of the man himself, J.D. Morgan, as Negan. The remaining 30 episodes will be split up like this. Six episodes, which is an extension of season 10. And then 24 episodes starting, more than likely, it's going to premiere in October. That's season 11. Uh, we're going to get 12 episodes uh, starting in October, most likely, of 2021. 
And then the final 12 will probably air in October 2022. And that will be the end of The Walking Dead Mother Show. Uh, Philip Thompson on Facebook writes, Negan is my villain hero. Uh, Lindsay writes, love Firefly. It lasted one season. So yeah, Firefly, one season, big cult classic. And it didn't, it just did not have the viewership when it came out. And there are a lot of other shows, which I'm not going to name right now, that have recently been canceled over the last several years that I think are going to fall into the cult classic category as well. I'm going to keep those to myself for right now. Uh, Maybe in time I'll reveal them, but I think a lot more are going to fall in that category. Want to welcome Black Lacerda, who's with us from Brazil on Instagram. Welcome, Black. So, let's see what else we've got. 10 of the weirdest horror movies you have never heard of. Okay, and I'm like, you know what? I was debating whether or not to do this, but I want to see if I actually heard of any of these movies that they are going to name in this list. Horror is one of the biggest and most eclectic genres in all of cinema. It encompasses everything from thoughtful psychological flicks, like The Sixth Sense, to disturbingly violent slasher like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and zombie classics such as Night of the Living Dead. Well, it looks like Texas Chainsaw and Night of the Living Dead are going to be the theme of tonight. But there's one, sorry, but there's more to horror than the classics. Sure, The Exorcist, The Shining, Psycho, Halloween, The Ring, and A Nightmare on Elm Street are all great, But underneath all the obvious horror yarns, there is a whole collection of bizarre, daring, and just plain hideous films waiting for horror fans to enjoy once they're done getting comfortable with the the usual suspects. The following films are just a handful of such underseen horrifying gems whether a horror comedy slasher about Santa Claus, a twisted tale about murderous slugs, or a no-holds-barred splatter action. These are the kinds of films that often pass modern moviegoers by despite their genuine originality and effectiveness. Let's get to the list. I gotta see. Black Sheep. On a sheep farm in New Zealand, Henry begins to suffer from a crippling phobia of sheep, courtesy of a cruel prank from his brother Angus. Years later, he returns to sell the farm, only to find out that Angus has started performing experiments on the sheep that turns them into carnivorous monsters. Wow. Okay. Never heard of that one. Number 9, Bad Taste, 1987. Take a look at this picture. Damn! Before he was telling epic stories about hobbits, wizards, and an all-powerful ring, Peter Jackson worked around New Zealand creating no-budget horror and comedy films that really have to be seen to be believed. The most bizarre of his early work is Bad Taste a sci-fi comedy horror that really lives up to its name. The basic premise sees aliens come to Earth to harvest the bodies of humans for food. 
as a group of unassuming protagonists race to stop the infestation. Grim, disgusting, and incredibly darkly funny, Bad Taste is by no means a good film, but does carry with all of it the charm of a young director just having some fun and making what he wants. And we're learning a lot about Peter Jackson over the last couple of weeks and some of his earlier works. And uh, yeah, you never know what's going to turn out for you in the industry. He ended up being the main man behind the camera for The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings movies. Number eight, Nightbreed. Wow, I'm surprised. Nightbreed is known by a lot of people. It's a Clive Barker film, and uh, I would not have put that on this list. Anyway, Clive Barker is one of the most uh, inventive and twisted writers, and I can vouch for that. I have heard the man speak live. You look at him, he is a normal, unassuming Englishman, you know? But when you get to hear him speak... And he starts revealing uh, his creative process. You will never hear somebody who has an imagination that is so twisted and disturbing as Clive Barker. Uh, Absolutely fascinating to hear him speak. And I'm trying to get him on this show. Uh, He's sort of gone into not really making many public appearances, But I would love to get Clive Barker on this show just to talk about his influences because I want you guys to hear what I heard way back in the 90s when I went and saw him at horror conventions and had the privilege to hear him speak live. Uh, Nightbreed stands out as one of his most bizarre and underrated creations. It has grisly violence, disturbing imagery, and monsters whose appearances will stay with you long after the credits have finished rolling. The film follows a guy called Boone, a mental patient who is tricked into thinking he's an infamous serial killer. In his disbelief and desperation, he hides with a tribe of monsters called the Nightbreed, and after being killed by police, is reborn as a member of the tribe. Nightbreed is a great movie. I love Nightbreed. I Like I said, I would have definitely not put this on the list. Never would have thought of even putting this on the list. All right, let's see what's next on the list. Seven, Santa Slay, 2005. Here's the story. In Santa Slay, Father Christmas is depicted as the son of Satan, cursed by an angel to deliver presents and joy to children around the world for a thousand years. The year is now 2005, and Santa's curse is finally at an end, meaning he is free to relive his evil, murderous past. Never heard of it, never seen it, but I gotta tell you, That sounds like a very creative and unique uh, idea for a movie. I might watch that. Number six, Ah, Zombies. And yes, that is the title. Ah, Zombies, 2007. Also known as uh, Wasting Away, Ah, Zombies takes a tired, 
subgenre and inject something new and fun into its premise. The film follows a group of zombies and shows life from their perspective. In their eyes, they're just normal people, but to those around them, they are bloodthirsty undead. I never knew we had a movie from a zombie's point of view. So this is also fascinating and just piques my curiosity at least. All right, next on the list, number five, 1988 Slugs. Based on the novel by the same name by Sean Hudson, Slug sees a sleepy town overrun with vicious slugs born from toxic waste. The slugs kill the locals in increasingly grisly ways, offering up some gory special effects and very dark humor in the process. All right, let's go to next. Number four, The Happiness of the Katakuris, 2001. If you're after the weirdest film you can get your hands on, it might be worth checking out the Japanese horror comedy musical, The Happiness of the Katakuris, directed by cult favorite Takeshi Maiki. The Happiness sees an odd and twisted family running a bed and breakfast and are confronted with the facts that their guests keep dying. Horror comedy musical. Okay. Number three, the lore. Uh, Seems like the chats are not coming through on YouTube and Facebook. So if you guys are talking, uh, I'm not seeing them come through on the universal chat. I apologize for that. Uh, The lore, 2015, a Polish horror musical. The lore is a an adult retelling of Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid. In it, two mermaid sisters come up onto land and start working as strippers at a local club. While there, one of the mermaids falls in love with a musician and works to make him love her back by any means necessary. Sounds like a lot of stuff we've seen. And, uh, except for the mermaid part, that's the twist in this one. All right, number two, Bite, 2015. This is a fascinating list. In this deeply unsettling body horror, a a young woman called Casey is bitten by an unseen creature while vacationing in Costa Rica. When she returns home, she begins to horrifically mutate. Her Her senses heighten. Her nightmares growing, her humanity slipping away. Like an insect, she starts laying eggs around her apartment and loses the need for basic human necessities. I'll tell you what, some of these movies, yeah, I've never heard of them, but their premise sounds pretty damn interesting. And number one on the list is Tokyo Gore Police, 2008. With Tokyo Gore Police, what you see is what you get, and then some. In a futuristic Japan, a special branch of police officers are tasked with hunting down mutated creatures called engineers, monsters created by sadistic Keyman. Amongst the new police force is Ruka, a woman desperately searching for the assassin who killed her father. So there you guys have it, all right? Ten horror movies 
that you've probably never heard of. The one that I can say I definitely heard of was Nightbreed that, in their opinion, might be worth watching. Some interesting storylines in there, and who knows, when I have the time, I may actually check one or two of them out myself. So, in the time we have left, uh, I want us to uh, take a look at a clip. This is uh, movies. It, it was very hard to find a clip about, you know, the suspension of disbelief. The closest thing I could come to, Watch Mojo put a video together about movies that have tried too hard and basically pushed the suspension of disbelief well beyond the believable or even the amount that we as viewers are supposed to you know turn our brains off to enjoy these movies so let's go ahead and watch i think it's a top 10 list of these movies that just tried a little bit too hard and see if we agree or disagree so let's go ahead and check this out some movies have the power to make you scream out in terror and others just make you go wait what Hey guys, it's Phoebe with Watch Mojo. Today we're counting down our picks for the top 10 horror movies that tried too hard to be scary. My name is Elliot Moore. Just going to talk in a very positive Marky manner. Mark. Giving off good vibes. We're taking a look at movies that stopped at nothing to evoke terror, but went a little overboard in the process. Let's get to it. Number 10, Blair Witch. Seriously, I want to go home now. We need to get out of here. This is the 2016. The original Blair Witch Project had a real original feel to it, with grainy cinematography that made it feel like a nightmare version of America's Funniest Home Videos. The much belated sequel, on the other hey, hand, Cassia. barely lives up to its predecessor, desperately attempting to follow the same beats. <laughs> James, brother of Heather from the original, heads to the same forest as his ill-fated sister, but the result is a series of jump scares and nothing particularly fresh. It's pretty much the first movie with all the soul ripped out and higher quality cameras. Number nine, Jason X. This was an alien sim. Yeah, it is. Pause play. I talked about this earlier. I said pause play. He's not pausing. Yeah, no kidding. He's been to hell. He's been to Manhattan. He's been to space. Fast forward to the year 2455, and Jason Voorhees, probably one of the most shot-at villains ever, has been frozen, then thawed, aboard a spaceship full of unsuspecting students. I got him! I got him! I got no shot! Move! Why would you do that? Thought that if was the concept idea. alone doesn't sound bad enough, the movie itself is highly predictable, over-reliant on special effects, and despite being the 10th in the franchise, there's nothing new or striking about it, except for an updated hockey mask. The whole thing feels like it's trying too hard whilst, at the same time, feeling there was quite the outfit lazy. I was talking you guys about. might want to run. Number 8, Shark Attack 3. <laughs> For those of you not up to speed with the straight-to-video Shark Attack franchise, it's a three-part onslaught of over-the-top special effects and strange dialogue, including a now-infamous improvisation from Doctor Who's John Barrowman. Throughout the movie, the shark's size constantly changes, and it manages to eat both an entire yacht full of people and a man on a jet ski with the same amount of ease. 
Arguably, this falls into the so bad it's good category, but for the sheer amount of carnage and its bizarre overall concept, we think it tries too hard to be scary. Sorry, Number seven, don't be afraid of the dark. Guillermo del Toro usually produces some wonderful cinematic feats. Just take a look at Pan's Labyrinth and, more recently, The Shape of Water. This 2010 venture, however, certainly isn't up there with his best. A remake of a 1970s TV film, it tries hard to play on typical horror film scares – a dark house, whispering walls, and creepy monsters. But with all the ingredients to cook up a real fright fest, it all ends up a little overbaked. Then there's the monsters obsessed with stealing teeth, who are way more cute than scary. Well, sort of. <laughs> Number six, cabin fever. What are you doing out here? Same thing you guys are. Enjoying nature. This Based on a bad. movie released just 14 years before, Travis Zaruni gave us this remake that nobody asked for. Eli Roth's original is an all-out gore fest that pays homage to rural horror conventions, so a reimagining of a film that is in itself a pastiche seems pretty pointless. Get out! Get out! Get out! No! Get out! Get out. You're not going anywhere. From the very beginning, the audience is surrounded by blood and guts, and things just continue to get bloodier from there. Aiming to shock but instead achieving fake blood overkill, the only ones to come out of this film with an improved resume are the makeup department. <laughs> Number 5. Snakes on a Plane I like snakes on a plane. I thought that was very entertaining. One of those instances in which the entire concept of a movie is summed up in its title, this airborne slither flick aims to play on our fears, but instead goes full throttle towards pure snake overload. Despite delivering one of the best lines in cinematic history, Enough is enough! I have had it with these mother snakes on this mother plane! Samuel L. Jackson love Samuel can't save Jackson. it from all feeling a bit over the top, and even though it can be seen as rather tongue-in-cheek, its ridiculous premise and A-list lead actor show that there were probably some ambitions with this motion picture that never quite came to fruition. I like it. I mean, I like snakes on a plane. Number a singer four, chick liked happening. it too. Honey? Honey, you talking funny. What's wrong with you? What do you mean? Everyone's uh, dead? What? M. Night Shyamalan, master of the twist ending, likes to keep audiences on their toes as they await the big reveal at the end of each of his movies. However, many would have left this one feeling disappointed. After a series of mass suicides across the United States, a small group tries to get to the bottom of things. And what was the cause? Spoiler alert, it was the trees. <laughs> As if that wasn't infuriating enough, the entire film feels way too overconfident, and the acting is stiff and unconvincing throughout, despite the impressive cast. You all are gonna leave right now! Ma'am, you don't understand. There's something happening in a few states. In this region, it's not safe! Leave now! Number three, The Gallows. 
I've seen this too. Cassie, this was, what the hell are you doing? After a good. series of relatively successful found footage horror movies, this forgettable 2015 flick failed to live up to the likes of Paranormal Activity and Cloverfield. Trying way too hard in all areas to be scary, it I mean, exhausts great, all the genre cliches, as well enjoyable. as having a teen movie edge to it, and ultimately, has a messy and overdone final appearance. Is there some kind of trick to this door, Piper? No, there's not a trick. Why isn't it opening? I don't know. Ryan, what'd you he do? He doesn't have service either. I'm not serious. Right, he doesn't have it. Guys, we shouldn't be in this situation. Just find another door. We're going to have it well and truly scrapes the bottom of the barrel as far as this sort of movie is concerned. From its dizzying handheld camera that is way too shaky, to the sheer predictability of it all. Number 2. Troll 2 Oh my god, what is this? It's a troll. He was one of us, and you killed him! Now it's your turn! There's so much to say about this movie that it's hard to know where to start. We mean, there's not even any trolls in it. Then it was a goblin in disguise! These evil creatures can transform themselves into flesh and blood people. A family ends up stranded in the town of Nilbog, goblin spelt backwards, and so the nightmarish chaos ensues. Another so bad it's good feature, Troll 2 is considered to be one of the best worst films ever made, but it still tries too hard to be scary, to the point that it just, well, isn't. None of it particularly makes any sense at all, but this scene will always have a place in dramatic acting folklore. They're eating her! No shit. And then they're going to eat me! No shit. Oh my god! Before we continue, be sure to subscribe to our channel and ring the bell to get notified about our latest videos. You have the option to- Alright. Hey! The Wicker Man, number one. Alright, alright, so there's that list. Before we go tonight, we do have a video submission that was given to us by our contributor, Fandom Plus. We only have a few minutes left. I think I have enough time to show this video. Uh, it was just- submitted today it's a negan tribute so let's go ahead and check it out before we close out the show here it is guys i've been on a long road with the devil right beside me Rising with the morning sun It's the hunger that drives me Oh Lord, set my soul Take my pain and turn it into gold Cause all I know, all I know, all I know is
There you guys have it. I want to thank Fandom Plus for submitting that. I'll post that on our social media at some point tonight for you guys who want to see it again and for everyone who is not watching to watch that video. That's the end of our show tonight. Uh, great show. Thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, visit us at deadtalklive.com. If you're on YouTube, please hit the thumbs up button on this broadcast. Make sure you're subscribed. Check us out on all of our five social media streaming platforms. You guys are amazing as always. I'll be back on the air again tomorrow night for another great conversation. And until then, guys, remember, stay walking. Good night.